The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the podcast. This is the History of Literature. everyone. Happy New Year. Here I am. It's four o'clock in the morning. I've been awake since two. Had one of those moments where you go to bed early because the day has been exhausting. I thought it was a little under the weather. Then I realized it was from lifting weights a little too hard. Certain muscles are sore. That dull ache isn't from disease. It's from health. Getting healthy. Another New Year's resolution. Reminds me of the old president at my alma mater. A guy who actually shut down the school's football program. He said, yeah, sometimes I feel like I should exercise. Whenever that happens, I lie down until the feeling goes away. But I am of a different school of thought. I am of the healthy body, healthy mind school. I get out there and run. I get out there and put in the work. I like the feeling of the heart racing, the sweat coming down, the muscles burning, the pain and the gain. You know it's good for you, just like eating well, just like not smoking. We know these things. And yet, we have big problems. We age, we go through tragedy, we deal with loss and grief, and we have self-inflicted problems. We live in systems that work against us. We have not yet figured out how to get greed and violence and tragic stupidity out of our world. And that was sort of what happened to me last night. Hey, I get no joy out of New Year's. It's not a great holiday for me, usually. Neither is my birthday. Maybe I resent the passage of time. But I also look back... And I look ahead, and I can count blessings as well as anyone. I can feel great soaring moments of joy. And I can also feel totally miserable. 2019 was not a great year, in my opinion. 2020 is already off to a frightening start. So that was why I went to bed early. This feeling of huge foreboding. Something bad was in the works. I woke up and started reading headlines about war with Iran. Another war. Another war. Hopefully that's not what this all comes to. But I think I stopped hoping sometime around 2004. Good Lord. But you didn't come here for political analysis, did you? No, you did not. What did you come here for? It's a good question. It's a show called The History of Literature, and yet, if you've been listening for a while, if if this is your first time listening, you're probably thinking that the host has gone insane. What kind of show is this? Well, good question. If you've been listening for a while, you know I have kind of an uneasy relationship with the name of the podcast. I started it because... 
There wasn't anything out there quite like it. I looked for it. I couldn't find it. I decided to start it myself. It's what I wanted to hear. There was a great history of Rome, very good history of Napoleon. I liked the history of things, and I liked literature, loved it. And yet in some ways, I knew from the beginning I was not the right guy to host a show like that. The title implies a sort of broad overview, doesn't it? Facts and figures, putting things in perspective, a kind of authoritative imprint, a selection process, panels of editors and advisors, an encyclopedic overview, the stamp of approval of an institution, a media outlet, a publication, a university, an academic organization. I had none of that. I had me. I knew there would be history because that's what interested me. I wasn't interested in a book club where I talk about my reaction to some book. I'm sure other podcasts are doing that, and no doubt they are doing it very well. But I like seeing how literature impacts a whole society, an era. I like seeing the rippling effects that a Homer has, or a Shakespeare, or a Tolstoy. I also like the smaller, but still important effects that other writers have had. I like learning about people who wrote and people who read. I still do. It still fires up the spirit. People write in all the time suggesting topics for shows, and I think yes, and yes, and yes. I hardly ever think no, or even nah. I think, oh my God, what a great idea. A new stone to turn over. So, I knew I'd have enough history to work in, but if you know me at all by now, you know that my mind just isn't going to march through history like one page of the dictionary after the next. I can't just do facts and figures. If someone was paying me to do that, I suppose I could, but I already had another job, which took up a lot of time and energy, and I wasn't going to invent an imaginary job and perform that. That's one of the things that cracks me up, or doesn't really crack me up. It's one of those things I have to constantly resist. I have to studiously ignore it. Because if I give in, it will take away all my energy. It will drain me. And that thing is this. People who demand that the show be something it's not. Why haven't you done X yet? Or you don't do enough Y. Look, I have a boss. I'm not looking for another one. I might not have done X or Y Maybe I've only done other letters in the alphabet, but the alternative is not me doing X or Y. It's me not doing the show at all. I don't have a master plan here. I have some weeks where I have five topics clamoring for attention, and I have to tell four of them no. And they go away disappointed. I have other weeks where I'm looking at the blank wall, wondering why I ever started this thing. That's just how it is. Literature, for me, fills cracks. If it's not there for me, I can't manufacture enthusiasm for it. And if I don't have enthusiasm, I can't do the show. It's not a little hobby. It means something. If it doesn't mean something, as one of our heroes, Flannery O'Connor, said about the Eucharist, then the hell with it. That's what she said in response to the idea that the Eucharist, the giving of bread and wine as the flesh and blood of Christ, might best be viewed as a metaphor. Someone put that to her. No, oh, can't you just view it like a metaphor? Well, if it's a metaphor, then the hell with it, she said. Well, if literature is just a little trinket over there in the corner, a time killer, a source of entertainment, a game, then the hell with it. So, here we are, 
4 a.m. 4.23 now, actually. And all this is to tell you why I'm greeting 2020 with a lot of dread and anxiety, a general malaise, a flatness. I'm writing some short stories in there about as bleak as can be imagined. Bleak stuff. Funny, too, but darkly funny. They should come with labels like those good dark chocolate bars. 65% dark, 80% dark, 90% dark. How dark do you like your chocolate? Pretty dark. How about your fiction? Pretty dark, too, as it turns out. Well, what can I say? Life is dark much of the time. It has pockets of excitement opportunities abound. Life is good. Love is good. Being young is good. Seeing babies explore things. All awesome. I love good food, good wine, a winning football team, an outstanding movie, spending time with family and friends. All to the good. I'm getting excited already. Oh my God. The list of podcast episodes alone is enough to break me out of my funk. Also, this coffee I'm drinking. But the episodes were lining up Borges, Nausgaard, Bellow, Agatha Christie, some long-awaited episodes on Joyce Carol Oates and Richard Wright and James Baldwin, Jean-Jacques Rousseau and David Hume, great literary takedowns, some really great stuff. The Merchant of Venice. I have all these books. I'm doing all the reading. I have guests lined up. It's going to be a great year. I know that. And I believe in this show as a kind of sanctuary. I heard about a woman living... Uh, during the Hong Kong protests, not the current ones, the OG protests in Tiananmen Square. She was in China then, in the middle of crackdowns and oppression, watching her world crumble. She pulled out Marcel Proust and read. She inspired me, actually. I read Proust in China as well. It was not just an escape, not just an immersion. It was taking a longer view was rising above. It was using literature as a reminder that humankind is capable of great achievement as well as blundering misery. That's what literature does for me. And I could wallow around in climate change and war and horrendous politics and all the things that affect me every day and affect you every day. All the depressing headlines. And I can't Avoid it totally here, because after all, I'm a human being, not a fact-spewing robot. I'm not Siri answering a question about who is Gabriel Garcia Marquez. I'm a voice and a mind, and I live in the world. But I see the value in having a place where we don't talk about the world. Not about the daily world, not about the headlines. A place where we remember that no matter who the leaders are, We have a lot of living and dying to do out here in the sticks. We have a lot of children running around, a lot of lovers loving, a lot of miracles happening, a lot of working and resting and striving, hope and hopelessness. And that's literature. That's where literature lives too. That's where we find it, where we sharpen our blade I like that metaphor, actually. We're like soldiers setting out to battle life. Literature is where we hone our weapons. And so, this is my introduction to this episode, because we're not just 
going to do the usual thing. I'm going through one of my obsessive phases. And my obsession right now is Chekhov. It happens every couple of years or so. Anton Chekhov. Nobody pierces me like Chekhov. Not even Tolstoy. Not even Dostoevsky. Not even Bellow. Not even Graham Greene. Not James Joyce and the Dubliners. Nobody gets to me like Chekhov. I can't read too many stories of his in a row now. I used to. Not anymore. Now I read one. If it's the right one. And I'm devastated for weeks. I brood on it. I dip back into it. I can't believe it. I explore it. I find it unfathomably good. I take it apart and put it back together. I know this sounds pretentious. I don't mean it to be. I'm sure you have authors like this, too. We all love reading. That's why we're here. That's why you've lasted for 201 episodes or stumbled onto this one and made it this far. And I know I've talked about Chekhov before, and I know I always at least give you some context, some context about the man's life, and that makes sense to do because this is the history of literature, right? It's not just literature, it's history too. But I can't bring myself to do it (laughs) this time. (laughs) All I could do is give you the story, Gooseberries. I'll read it. And then maybe I'll talk about it, or maybe we'll just... Actually, I'll talk about it. It's an incredible story. I think Charles Baxter might have mentioned it as one of his favorites way back when. In one of our early episodes when he talked about Chekhov. We might have mentioned it when we did the Lady with the Little Dog episode. And I'd like to talk about it. To share with you my thoughts. Maybe I'll do that at the end. Why not? So, let's take a quick break. And listen to Gooseberries and talk about why this short story from 1898 has hit me so hard at this time, at this moment. grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts.
gooseberries. The sky had been covered with rain clouds ever since the early morning. It was a still day, cool and dull, one of those misty days when the clouds have long been lowering overhead, and you keep thinking it is just going to rain, and the rain holds off. Ivan Ivanich, the veterinary surgeon, and Birkin, the high school teacher, had walked till they were tired, and the way over the fields seemed endless to them. Far ahead, they could just make out the windmill of the village of Moronisitskoya, and what looked like a range of low hills at the right, extending well beyond the village. And they both knew that this range was really the bank of the river, and that further on were meadows, green willow trees, country estates. If they were on the top of these hills, they knew they would see the same boundless fields and telegraph posts, and the train, like a crawling caterpillar in the distance while in fine weather even the town would be visible. On this still day, when the whole of nature seemed kindly and pensive, Ivan Ivanich and Birkin felt a surge of love for this plain and thought how vast and beautiful their country was. The last time we stayed in Elder Prokovi's hut, said Birkin, you said you had a story to tell me. Yes, I wanted to tell you the story of my brother. Ivan Ivanich took a deep breath and lighted his pipe as a preliminary to his narrative. But just then, the rain came. Five minutes later, it was coming down in torrents, and nobody could say when it would stop. Ivan Ivanich and Birkin stood still, lost in thought. The dogs, already soaked, stood with drooping tails, gazing at them wistfully. We must try and find shelter, said Birkin. Let's go to Alekin's. It's quite near. Come on, then. They turned aside and walked straight across the newly reaped field, veering to the right till they came to a road. Very soon poplars, an orchard, and the red roofs of barns came into sight. The surface of the river gleamed, and they had a view of an extensive reach of water, a windmill, and a whitewashed bathing shed. This was Sofiano, where Alekin lived. The mill was working, and the noise made by its sails drowned the sound of the rain. The whole dam trembled. Horses, soaking wet, were standing near some carts, their heads drooping, and people were moving about with sacks over their heads and shoulders. It was wet, muddy, bleak, and the water looked cold and sinister. Ivan Ivanich and Birkin were already experiencing the misery of dampness, dirt, physical discomfort. Their boots were caked with mud, and when, having passed the mill dam, they took the upward path to the landowner's barns, they fell silent, as if vexed with one another. The sound of winnowing came from one of the barns. The door was open, and clouds of dust issued from it. Standing in the doorway was Alekin himself, a stout man of some forty years, with longish hair, looking more like a professor or an artist than a landed proprietor. He was wearing a white shirt, greatly in need of washing, belted with a piece of string, and long drawers with no trousers over them. His boots, too, were caked with mud and straw, his eyes and nose were ringed with dust. He recognized Ivan Ivanich 
and Birkin, and seemed glad to see them. "'Go up to the house, gentlemen,' he said, smiling. "'I'll be with you in a minute.' It was a large, two-story house. Alekin occupied the ground floor. Two rooms with vaulted ceilings and tiny windows, where the stewards had lived formerly. They were poorly furnished and smelled of rye bread, cheap vodka, and harness. He hardly ever went into the upstairs rooms, excepting when he had guests. Ivan Ivanich and Birkin were met by a maidservant, a young woman of such beauty that they stood still involuntarily and exchanged glances. "'You have no idea how glad I am to see you here, dear friends,' said Alekin, overtaking them in the hall. "'It's quite a surprise.' Pelagia, he said, turning to the maid, find the gentleman a change of clothes, and I might as well change myself. But I must have a wash first, for I don't believe I've had a bath since the spring. Wouldn't you like to go and have a bath while they get things ready here? The beauteous Pelagia, looking very soft and delicate, brought them towels and soap, and Alekin and his guests set off for the bathing house. Yes, it's a long time since I had a wash, he said, taking off his clothes. As you see, I have a nice bathing place my father had it built, but somehow I never seem to get time to wash. He sat on the step, soaping his long locks in his neck, and all around him the water was brown. Yes, you certainly, remarked Ivan Ivanich with a significant glance at his host's head. It's a long time since I had a wash repeated Alekin, somewhat abashed, and he soaped himself again, and now the water was dark blue, like ink. Ivan Ivanich emerged from the shed, splashed noisily into the water, and began swimming beneath the rain, spreading his arms wide, making waves all round him, and the white water lilies rocked on the waves he made. He swam into the very middle of the river, and then dived, a moment later came up at another place and swam further, diving constantly and trying to touch the bottom. Ah, my God, he kept exclaiming in his enjoyment. Ah, my God. He swam up to the mill, had a little talk with some peasants there, and turned back. But when he got to the middle of the river, he floated, holding his face up to the rain. Birkin and Alekin were dressed and ready to go, but he went on swimming and diving. Good God! he kept exclaiming. Dear God! Come out! Birkin shouted to him. They went back to the house, and only after the lamp was lit in the great drawing room on the upper floor, and Birkin and Ivan Ivanich in silk dressing gowns and warm slippers were seated in armchairs, while Alekin washed and combed, paced the room in his new frock coat, enjoying the warmth, the cleanliness, his dry clothes and comfortable slippers, while the beautiful Pelagia, smiling softly, stepped noiselessly over the carpet with her tray of tea and preserves, did Ivan Ivanich embark upon his yarn. The ancient dames, young ladies, and military gentlemen looking down at them severely from their gilded frames, as if they too were listening. There were two of us brothers, he began. Ivan Ivanich, me, and my brother Nikolai Ivanich, two years younger than myself. 
I went in for learning and became a veterinary surgeon, but Nikolai started working in a government office when he was only 19. Our father, Chimsha Himalaisky, was educated in a school for the sons of private soldiers, but was later promoted to officer's rank and was made a hereditary nobleman and given a small estate. After his death, the estate had to be sold for debts, but at least our childhood was passed in the freedom of the countryside, where we roamed the fields and the woods like peasant children, taking the horses to graze, peeling bark from the trunks of lime trees, fishing, and all that sort of thing. And anyone who has once in his life fished for perch or watched the thrushes fly south in the autumn, rising high over the village on clear, cool days, is spoiled for town life, and will long for the countryside for the rest of his days. My brother pined in his government office. The years passed, and he sat in the same place every day, writing out the same documents and thinking all the time of the same thing, how to get back to the country. And these longings of his gradually turned into a definite desire, into a dream of purchasing a little estate somewhere on the bank of a river or the shore of a lake. He was a meek, good-natured chap. I was fond of him, but could feel no sympathy with the desire to lock oneself up for life in an estate of one's own. They say man only needs six feet of earth, but it is a corpse and not man which needs these six feet. And now people are actually saying that it is a good sign for our intellectuals to yearn for the land and try to obtain country dwellings. And yet, these estates are nothing but those same six feet of earth. To escape from the town, from the struggle, from the noise of life, to escape and hide one's head on a country estate is not life, but egoism, idleness. It is a sort of renunciation, but renunciation without faith. It is not six feet of earth, not a country estate that man needs, but the whole globe, the whole of nature, room to display his qualities and the individual characteristics of his free soul. My brother Nikolai sat at his office desk, dreaming of eating soup made from his own cabbages, which would spread a delicious smell all over his own yard, of eating out of doors, on the green grass, of sleeping in the sun, sitting for hours on a bench outside his gate, and gazing at the fields and woods. Books on agriculture and all those hints printed on calendars were his delight, his favorite spiritual nourishment. He was fond of reading newspapers, too, but all he read in them was advertisements of the sale of so many acres of arable land and meadowland, with residents attached a river, an orchard, a mill, and ponds fed by springs. His head was full of visions of garden paths, flowers, fruit, nestling boxes, carp ponds, and all that sort of thing. These visions differed according to the advertisements he came across, but for some reason, gooseberry bushes invariably figured in them. He could not picture to himself a single estate or picturesque nook that did not have gooseberry bushes in it. Country life has its conveniences, he would say. You sit on the veranda drinking tea with your own ducks floating on the pond and everything smells so nice and... 
and the gooseberries ripen on the bushes. He drew up plans for his estate, and every plan showed the same features. A, the main residence. B, the servant's wing. C, the kitchen garden. D, gooseberry bushes. He lived thriftily, never ate or drank his fill, dressed anyhow like a beggar, and saved up all his money in the bank. He became terribly stingy. I could hardly bear to look at him, and whenever I gave him a little money or sent him a present on some holiday, he put that away too. Once a man gets an idea into his head, there's no doing anything with him. The years passed. He was sent to another province. He was over 40 and was still reading advertisements in the papers and saving up. At last I heard he had married, all for the same purpose, to buy himself an estate with gooseberry bushes on it. He married an ugly elderly widow for whom he had not the slightest affection just because she had some money. After his marriage, he went on living as thriftily as ever, half-starving his wife and putting her money in his own bank account. Her first husband had been a postmaster, and she was used to pies and cordials. But with her second husband, she did not even get enough black bread to eat. She began to languish on this diet, and three years later yielded up her soul to God. Of course, my brother did not for a moment consider himself guilty of her death. Money, like vodka, makes a man eccentric. There was a merchant in our town who asked for a plate of honey on his deathbed and ate up all his banknotes and lottery tickets with the honey so that no one else should get them. And one day, when I was examining a consignment of cattle at a, at a railway station, a drover fell under the engine and his leg was severed from his body. We carried him all bloody into the waiting room, a terrible sight, and he did nothing but beg us to look for his leg, worrying all the time. There were twenty rubles in the boot, and he was afraid they would be lost. That's a horse of a different color, put in Birkin. Ivan Ivanich paused for a moment and went on. After his wife's death, my brother began to look about for an estate. You can search for five years, of course, and in the end make a mistake and buy something quite different from what you dream of. My brother Nikolai bought three hundred acres, complete with gentleman's house, servants' quarters, and a park, on a mortgage to be paid through an agent, but there were neither an orchard, gooseberry bushes, nor a pond with ducks on it. There was a river, but it was as dark as coffee owing to the fact that there was a brickworks on one side of the estate and bone kilns on the other. Nothing daunted, however, my brother Nikolai Ivanich ordered two dozen gooseberry bushes and settled down as a landed proprietor. Last year I paid him a visit. I thought I would go and see how he was getting on there. In his letters, my brother gave his address as Chumberoklov Fallow, or Himalayskoya. I arrived at Himalayskoya in the afternoon. It was very hot. Everywhere were ditches, fences, hedges, rows of fir trees, and it was hard to drive into the yard and find a place to leave one's carriage. As I went, a fat, 
ginger-colored dog, remarkably like a pig, came out to meet me. It looked as if it would have barked if it were not so lazy. The cook, who was also fat and like a pig, came out of the kitchen, barefoot, and said her master was having his after-dinner rest. I made my way to my brother's room and found him sitting up in bed, his knees covered by a blanket. He had aged and grown stout and flabby, his cheeks, nose, and lips protruded. I almost expected him to grunt into the blanket. We embraced and wept, tears of joy mingled with melancholy, because we had once been young and were now both gray-haired and approaching the grave. He put on his clothes and went out to show me over his estate. Well, how are you getting on here? I asked. All right, thanks, B. I'm enjoying myself. He was no longer the poor, timid clerk, but a true proprietor, a gentleman. He had settled down and was entering with zest into country life. He ate a lot, washed in the bathhouse, and put on flesh. He had already gotten into litigation with the village commune, the brickworks, and the bone kilns, and took offense if the peasants failed to call him Your Honor. He went in for religion in a solid, gentlemanly way, and there was nothing casual about his pretentious good works. And what were those good works? He treated all the diseases of the peasants with bicarbonate of soda and castor oil, and had a special Thanksgiving service held on his name day, after which he provided a gallon of vodka, supposing that this was the right thing to do. Oh, those terrible gallons! Today the fat landlord hauls the peasants before the Zemstvo representative for letting their sheep graze on his land. Tomorrow, on the day of rejoicing, he treats them to a gallon of vodka, and they drink and sing and shout hurrah, prostrating themselves before him when they are drunk. Any improvement in his conditions, anything like satiety or idleness, develops the most insolent complacency in a Russian. Nikolai Ivanich, who had been afraid of having an opinion of his own when he was in the government service, was now continually coming out with axioms in the most ministerial manner. Education is essential, but the people are not ready for it yet. Corporal punishment is an evil, but in certain cases it is beneficial and indispensable. I know the people and I know how to treat them, he said. The people love me. I only have to lift my little finger, and the people will do whatever I want. All this, mark you, with a wise, indulgent smile. Over and over again, he repeated, We the gentry, or speaking as a gentleman, and seemed to have quite forgotten that our grandfather was a peasant, and our father a common soldier. Our very surname, Chimsha Himalaisky, in reality so absurd, now seemed to him a resounding, distinguished, and euphonious name. But it is of myself, and not of him, that I wish to speak. I should like to describe to you the change which came over me in those few hours I spent on my brother's estate. As we were drinking tea in the evening, the cook brought us a full plate of gooseberries. These were not gooseberries bought for money. They came from his own garden, and were the first fruits of the bushes he had planted. 
Nikolai Ivanich broke into a laugh and gazed at the gooseberries in tearful silence for at least five minutes. Speechless with emotion, he popped a single gooseberry into his mouth, darted at me the triumphant glance of a child who has at last gained possession of a longed-for toy, and said, Delicious! And he ate them greedily, repeating over and over again, Simply delicious! You try them! They were hard and sour, but as Pushkin says, the lie which exalts us is dearer than a thousand sober truths. I saw before me a really happy man, one whose dearest wish had come true, who had achieved his aim in life, got what he wanted, and was content with his lot and with himself. There had always been a tinge of melancholy in my conception of human happiness, and now, confronted by a happy man, I was overcome by a feeling of sadness, bordering on desperation. This feeling grew strongest of all in the night. A bed was made up for me in the room next to my brother's bedroom, and I could hear him moving about restlessly, every now and then getting up to take a gooseberry from a plate. How many happy, satisfied people there are, after all, I said to myself. What an overwhelming force. Just consider this life, the insolence and idleness of the strong, the ignorance and bestiality of the weak, all around intolerable poverty, cramped dwellings, degeneracy, drunkenness, hypocrisy, lying. And yet, peace and order apparently prevail in all those homes and in the streets. Of the 50,000 inhabitants of a town, not one will be found to cry out, to proclaim his indignation aloud. We see those who go to the market to buy food, who eat in the daytime and sleep at night, who prattle away, marry, grow old, carry their dead to the cemeteries. But we neither hear nor see those who suffer, and the terrible things in life are played out behind the scenes. All is calm and quiet, only statistics which are dumb, protest. So many have gone mad, so many barrels of drink have been consumed, so many children died of malnutrition. And apparently, this is as it should be. Apparently, those who are happy can only enjoy themselves because the unhappy bear their burdens in silence. And but for this silence, happiness would be impossible. It is a kind of universal hypnosis. There ought to be a man with a hammer behind the door of every happy man to remind him by his constant knocks that there are unhappy people and that happy as he himself may be, life will sooner or later show him its claws. Catastrophe will overtake him, sickness, poverty, loss, and nobody will see it, just as he now neither sees nor hears the misfortunes of others. But there is no man with a hammer. The happy man goes on living, and the petty vicissitudes of life touch him lightly, like the wind in an aspen tree, and all is well. That night, I understood that I, too, was happy and content, continued Ivan Ivanich, getting up. I, too, while out hunting, or at the dinner table, have held forth on the right way to live, to worship, to manage the people. I, too, have declared that without knowledge there can be no light, 
that education is essential, but that bare literacy is sufficient for the common people. Freedom is a blessing. I have said one can't get on without it any more than without air, but we must wait. Yes, that is what I said, and now I ask, in the name of what must we wait? Here Ivan Ivanich looked angrily at Birkin. In the name of what must we wait, I ask you? What is there to be considered? Don't be in such a hurry, they tell me. Every idea materializes gradually, in its own time. But who are they who say this? What is the proof that it is just? You refer to the natural order of things, to the logic of facts, but according to what order, what logic do I, a living, thinking individual, stand on the edge of a ditch and wait for it to be gradually filled up, or choked with silt, when I might leap across it or build a bridge over it? And again, in the name of what must we wait? Wait, when we have not the strength to live, though live we must, and to live we desire. I left my brother early the next morning, and ever since I have found town life intolerable. The peace and order weigh on my spirits, and I am afraid to look into windows, because there is now no sadder spectacle for me than a happy family seated around the tea-table. I am old and unfit for the struggle. I am even incapable of feeling hatred. I can only suffer inwardly and give way to irritation and annoyance. At night my head burns from the rush of thoughts, and I am unable to sleep. Oh, if only I were young! Ivan Ivanich began pacing backwards and forwards, repeating, If only I were young still! Suddenly he went up to Alekin and began pressing first one of his hands and then the other. Pavel Konstantinich, he said in imploring accents, don't you fall into apathy. Don't you let your conscience be lulled to sleep. While you are still young, strong, active, do not be weary of well-doing. There is no such thing as happiness, nor ought there to be. But if there is any sense or purpose in life, this sense and purpose are to be found not in our own happiness, but in something greater and more rational. Do good! Ivan Ivanich said all this with a piteous, imploring smile, as if he were asking for something for himself. Then they all three sat in their armchairs a long way apart from one another, and said nothing. Ivan Ivanich's story satisfied neither Birkin nor Alekin. It was not interesting to listen to the story of a poor clerk who ate gooseberries, when from the walls generals and fine ladies, who seemed to come to life in the dark, were looking down from their gilded frames. It would have been much more interesting to hear about elegant people, lovely women, and the fact that they were sitting in a drawing-room in which everything, the swathed chandeliers, the armchairs, the carpet on the floor— proved that the people now looking out of the frames had once moved about here, sat in the chairs, drunk tea, where the fair Pelagia was now going noiselessly to and fro, was better than any story. Alekin was desperately sleepy. He had got up early at three o'clock in the morning to go about his work on the estate, and could now hardly keep his eyes open. But he would not go to bed, for fear one of his guests would relate something interesting after he was gone. He could not be sure whether what Ivan Ivanich had just told him was wise or just, 
but his visitors talked of other things besides grain, hay, or tar, of things which had no direct bearing on his daily life, and he liked this and wanted them to go on. Well, time to go to bed, said Birkin, getting up. Allow me to wish you a good night. Alekin said good night and went downstairs to his own room, the visitors remaining on the upper floor. They were allotted a big room for the night, in which were two ancient bedsteads of carved wood and an ivory crucifix in one corner. There was a pleasant smell of freshly laundered sheets from the wide, cool beds which the fair Pelagia had made up for them. Ivan Ivanich undressed in silence and lay down. Lord have mercy on us, sinners, he said, and covered his head with the sheet. There was a strong smell of stale tobacco from his pipe, which he put on the table, and Birkin lay awake a long time, wondering where the stifling smell came from. The rain tapped on the window panes all night. Gooseberries by Anton Chekhov. What a masterpiece. It's a simple story, really. The frame is simple. It's part of a trilogy. Let's ignore that. Its genius stands alone. The simple frame is that two men are out walking. One of them wants to tell the other a story of his brother. Before he can begin, they get caught in the rain. They head for some shelter. They're hosted by a third man. The man who wants to tell the story... Ivan Ivanich then tells the story. The three men go to bed. That's it. You could read a thousand stories like this and be bored to pieces. This one has as much dynamism, at least for me, as a thriller. The highs and lows of this are thrilling. They go so deep into the human heart. The context for the story, the story within a story, is beautiful. I love the afternoon where the clouds are threatening and the walk that they're taking. I recently read this story on the beach during a winter beach vacation with the Atlantic Ocean out there and just me, the middle of winter, the day after Christmas. I was alone on the beach in the early morning, and there was fog, and the sun came up behind the fog, barely sizzling its way through. The sun was like a dull coin, like a marble you could hold in your hand. The fog was breathtakingly gorgeous. The waves were crashing on the sand, white peaks churning over and over. The birds were out, some flying overhead, many more hopping and running along the sand, following the waves, searching for food as the water rolled back to the sea. I was in a kind of paradise, and yet 
There was danger here too, danger from the rain that was sure to come, danger from the cold, which had me wearing a thick winter coat, danger as always from the ocean, which can sweep everything away and bury it. And so you look up the beach toward the shore and you see grasses taking root and then shrubs and then trees. And you see havens, the houses, the hotels, the safety, the comfort. You can exert yourself out here, go for long walks, enjoy the solitude, embrace the beauty and sublimity of nature, and then return to the warmth and light of the hotel room, where you can climb under the blanket and open a book and read. That's what I did. That's where I was when I read Gooseberries. Or actually, I went out under the balcony of the room. I slid the door shut behind me. The boys were inside, reading books of their own. I was on the balcony breathing in the sea air as the last of the fog lifted and the darker storm clouds rolled in. This was the perfect place to read the story, which begins as it does with two Russian men walking over the fields all day from one village to the next, as the rain just holds off until finally it came down in torrents, soaking the men and the dogs. They head to Alekin's house, find him in the barn, and he seems glad to see them. There's a maid there, too, a young beauty. Now, what do we know of these three men? Birkin's a schoolteacher. Ivan Ivanich is a veterinary surgeon and smokes a pipe. The two men have a love of nature, a love for their country. For some reason, they're spending the day walking across the fields. We don't know why. But before the rain, they have time to reflect on the beauty of the countryside. On this still day, the story tells us, when the whole of nature seemed kindly and pensive, Ivan Ivanich and Birkin felt a surge of love for this plain and thought how vast and beautiful their country was. Think how many millions of stories start with something more contentious than this, more conflict. You can hear the critics. What are the stakes? What's going to happen? What do the characters want? What are they afraid of? Normally, that's great advice. Here, we just go with the story. We trust Chekhov. Two thoughtful men. A countryside that can excite the imagination, can fill you with a surge of love for its vast beauty. Is that enough? Would it be enough for a novel or an opera? No, probably not. But it would be enough for a haiku. And that's how I'm viewing the story at this point. These men are like the travelers in a Japanese haiku, almost anonymous, except for their response to nature. And their feeling is one that resonates with me. Alekin is different. Alekin isn't out on a journey. This isn't an existential walker looking for meaning. He's at work. The mill is grinding away. There's some noise. People have sacks over their heads in the rain. Horses are drooping, withstanding the downpour. The mill dam trembles. Our two travelers start to become miserable. Damp, muddy, bleak. The cold and wet feel sinister. And in the barns, there are clouds of dust coming out. We see that it's dry inside, a haven, a shelter from the storm. And yet it's not a palace we're entering. Even when they go to the house, we hear that it's a humble, poorly furnished house, smelling of rye bread, cheap vodka, and harness. Alekin is dry. He's dirty. That's, 
It's one of the beautiful passages. Alekid is so welcoming. He's so friendly. So glad to see them. Even though the house is poorly furnished and smells of country life, it's more like a barn than a house, it seems at least at first. It has vaulted ceilings and tiny windows, and it seems to me like a comfortable enough place. High ceilings are good. They make you feel comfortable and open. They have the air of church. There are guest bedrooms upstairs. But the beautiful passage comes when he tells the beautiful maid, and there's a beautiful maid, a Juliet with no Romeo here. She looks soft and delicate, and her beauty is so powerful that the two visitors stand still involuntarily and exchange glances. They don't fall in love. They don't become covetous or predatory. They admire youth and beauty. Wow, there she is. Look at her. How marvelous. I'm still not at the beautiful passage. Elekin asks the maid to find the gentleman a change of clothes because they're soaking wet. We feel it too, don't we? How nice it will be to get out of the wet, damp clothes. And he says, I, and I might as well change myself, but I must have a wash first, for I don't believe I've had a bath since the spring. Since the spring! <laughs> and we recall his appearance when they first met, how he appeared to them in the doorway of the barn, a stout man of some forty years with longish hair, looking more like a professor or an artist than a landed proprietor. His white shirt was greatly in need of washing, belted with a piece of string. His boots were caked with mud and straw, and his eyes and nose were ringed with dust. This is a man who hasn't had a wash since spring. He owns a bathhouse, which his father had built. It's right there on his property. But he hasn't washed since spring because he works in the fields. He works with the animals. He's comfortable in his clothes. He's comfortable with the earth. He's part landscape himself. He blends into it. He's got a bit of civilization to him the house, his manners, his kindliness as a host, but he's got a lot of country in him as well. And he's hardworking. Too busy to wash. God, I know these people so well. I used to go and spend the night with my school friends who lived on the farm, and they lived like this. Little houses in the middle of those vast fields, surrounded by that loamy smell. As comfortable with cows and pigs as with humans, and as kind and generous and eager to smile as anyone I've ever met, waking up before sunrise and working until after sundown, baths on Saturday night and church on Sunday morning. That's a lekin. So the beautiful maid brings towels and soap, and the three men go off to the bathing house. Remember, hardly anything has happened here so far in the story, and yet I'm on the edge of my seat. Two men out for a walk get caught in the rain, we have a bit of suspense because one of them was going to tell a story about his brother when the storm interrupted. Two of them find some shelter in the storm. We know the two guests are older and thoughtful. We know the host is hardworking and warm toward the guests. That's about it. What are we seeing here? Life? Life itself. Not a sheriff about to fight a duel. Not a woman quitting her job. Not squids in outer space, as Margaret Atwood might say. Just two men on a walk, and now three men going to wash up. And then, <laughs> wonderful passage where Alekin starts to wash. And it's, here, I'll read it again. Yes, 
It's a long time since I had a wash, he said, taking off his clothes. As you see, I have a nice bathing place, but my father had it built. But somehow, I never seemed to get time to wash. He sat on the step, soaping his long locks on his neck, and all around him, the water was brown. Yes, you certainly, remarked Ivan Ivanich with a significant glance at his host's head. It's a long time since I had a wash, repeated Alekin, somewhat abashed, and he soaped himself again, and now the water was dark blue, like ink. Ivan Ivanich emerged from the shed, splashed noisily into the water, and began swimming beneath the rain, spreading his arms wide, making waves all round him, and the white water lilies rocked on the waves he made. He swam into the very middle of the river, and then dived. A moment later came up at another place and swam further, diving constantly and trying to touch the bottom. Ah, my God, he kept exclaiming in his enjoyment. Ah, my God. He swam up to the mill, had a little talk with some peasants there and turned back. But when he got to the middle of the river, he floated, holding his face up to the rain. Birkin and Alekin were dressed and ready to go, but he went on swimming and diving. God! God! he kept exclaiming. Dear God! This little passage is a wonder. First, we get the gentle comedy, Alekin dirty, abashed at his <laughs> the, the brown water he's making, his guest almost not knowing what to say. He's so, his, the host is so filthy. The guest says, yes, you certainly, and he just trails off, and Alekin is, <laughs> just keeps soaping himself, apologizing, noting that it's been a long time since he's had a wash. There's nothing mean here, nothing cruel. What a light touch Chekhov has. The guests are embarrassed, maybe, but not mortified. There's no mocking tone, no jeering. It's the way really, really good parents are with kids. Maybe the way that wise school teacher handles an excited student. And then Ivan Ivanich, swimming, diving, enjoying the water. He swims, he goes to chat with some peasants, he turns back, he floats in the middle of the river and holds his face up to the rain. The others are ready to go, but he keeps swimming and diving, exclaiming, my God, God, he can't get enough. And we feel what's happening here. We feel the misery, the longing, the stifling life he's been leading, he's surprised by joy. The joy, the ecstasy that comes from nature. When you're stuck in a job, in a rut, in a life, you're stuck there and you can't get out. You only recall your youth or some dreams you once had, some moment in time when you had more energy, more gusto, more zeal for living than you do now. And recalling that doesn't help you. It makes things worse. And then you go and you just contemplate something like a beautiful sonata or the sunlight falling through the window in a museum in the late afternoon. Or in his case, you experience something like swimming in the rain and you are suddenly reawakened to the beauty of life, the feeling of being alive, the joy of it. Again, this isn't really a story here so much as a haiku. We're now about two pages into a story that's eight pages long. This is still set up. It's not clear whether we're going to have a dilemma still ahead of us. There may be more conflict, but I'm already sensing the conflict here. The conflict is a man who's captivated by life, 
by the feeling of life, and he's going to wonder why he feels so good now and why he has felt so cut off from life for so long. That's my sense. The moment is so vivid. His actions in the river, swimming and diving, are so striking. I'll be disappointed if we don't explore this feeling. And here's where Chekhov gets me. It's a feeling that I have too. I have this feeling all the time. It's a midlife crisis, maybe. But that's not the right word, I don't think, the right phrase. I used to feel it in my 20s as well. It's a kind of melancholia interrupted by moments of ecstasy, of epiphany. Not the epiphany of understanding, but the epiphany of wonder. So, the three go back inside. They're clean now, even Elegan, <laughs> the pig pen, who enjoys the feeling of being clean and warm. They dress and comb their hair, and the beautiful maid noiselessly brings them tea and jam. The perfect setting for their conversation, and we're going to get the story we were promised about the brother. Except, there's one more element to add. The ancient dames, young ladies, and military gentlemen looking down at them severely from their gilded frames, as if they too were listening. What a detail! What a detail! Chekhov is such a gifted, talented individual. It's as if he just grabbed this from thin air. The detail floats before him like a phrase floated before Mozart, or the perfect word floated before Shakespeare. There are paintings in the house, paintings of people who were once grand and whose time has passed, reminding everyone of two things. One, life is fleeting, time moves on, everyone gets old, everything dies. The past can judge us because they know what happens to everyone as time moves forward. They look down severely. That's the first thing. The second thing is that the three in the room are alive. Their time is now. This is their chance to live. What will they make of this opportunity? And the story we're about to hear is all about that. It's about how does one live one's life? How do you make the most of your time on earth? How do you deal with the hand that life has given you? What do you long for? What do you do to get it? How do we deal with one another? How do we live with ourselves? That's the story. And it's all framed. It's all previewed by these paintings. I don't view this as a symbol or anything like that. This isn't some trick. It's not some game. It's not an insertion to make us unlock some mystery. Not for me. That's not how I read literature. It's Chekhov. This is how I view it. It's Chekhov wanting to create the feeling, wanting to capture this aspect of life and knowing somehow whether he mathematically thought it all out and agonized over the right detail to set the mood, or whether it just occurred to him because he'd been in a situation like this, or he could imagine one, and he knew what would help him set the tone because he knew how paintings made him feel. Paintings, portraits of the past, make us feel this way. Statues do something slightly different. Landscape paintings, slightly different. Jackson Pollock's, slightly different. Monet's, slightly different. Renaissance paintings, slightly different. Andy Warhol's, slightly different. You see what I'm getting at? You know all these feelings when I say these different types of art. They're inside you. If you were about to tell a story with themes that will resonate a certain way, you grab at what's available and it fits. Tall, high windows give you one feeling, stained glass another feeling. 
stained glass at night. Yet another feeling. Fluorescent lights, another feeling. A fireplace is another. Stone walls, yet another. Marble floors, yet another. Heavy velvet drapes, that's one feeling. Light, gauzy curtains, yet another. All these different moods, all these different feelings, they're all there for the artist to draw upon. And Chekhov draws upon the paintings and portraits. And it is absolutely perfect. I heard this great line the other day, attributed to G.K. Chesterton. He said, Dickens didn't write what the people wanted. Dickens wanted what the people wanted. I feel that way about Chekhov. That it's not that he's telling me what questions to ask and providing me with the answers I want. He wants those answers too. Everything flows from there. The meaning, the significance, and the choice of detail. So... Here we go. We're now at the point where we hear the story within the story. We come to the promised story of Ivan Ivanich's brother Nikolai. We're warm and toasty inside. The storm is held off by our roof, and we have pleasant surroundings for our tale. And it is quiet, but awesome. We start out hearing about the childhood in the country. Our narrator, Ivan, sets this up as the source of desire. If you've fished for perch, he says, or watch the thrushes fly south in the autumn, rising high over the village on clear, cool days, you'll be spoiled for the life of a town. You'll long for the countryside all your days. Certainly, his brother Nikolai is. Nikolai works as a government clerk, doing the same thing day after day at his desk, his prison, longing for the life of a country gentleman, longing to own his own land, Ivan is different. Ivan is complex. Although he too grew up in the country and knew the pleasures, he had a hard time feeling sympathy for his brother's longing. Part of this is the grass being greener on the other side. We might think we have a little fable here. The grass is always greener. You always want what you can't have. That's how the story could go. Nikolai is dissatisfied. Ivan knows how to be content. But oh no, this is... Much deeper than that. That's not the story we're going to get. Ivan objects to the idea of the country altogether. He's of the Dr. Johnson school. He who is tired of London, said Dr. Johnson, is tired of life. The town, that's where it's at. The globe. People buzzing, people struggling. The noise of life. Ivan sees the desire to move to the country as an avoidance of the world, a renunciation of life itself, renunciation without faith. He says intellectuals in towns want this, to retreat to the country, but it's a bad thing, an act of selfishness, an escape from responsibilities, a sign of egoism. We are two paragraphs into this story within a story, and we have all of human life spread out before us. The history of human beings— 10,000 years or more of human struggle right here. Should we be hunter-gatherers and live in the countryside, essentially as individuals and small groups? Or should we domesticate our crops, create a surplus, a bounty, create specialized tasks, and live in a community? It's so elemental, the forces at work here. It's in our species DNA. Everyone I know faces this choice in some form or another. Live in an apartment, in a high-rise, or a house on land. 
and how much land. My brother-in-law wants to live on a big plot of land. Hundreds of acres would suit him so he can hunt and fish and roam his property and spend his life outside caring for his land, overseeing it, enjoying it, experiencing it. He'd be willing to live in the middle of nowhere, wherever land is cheapest. His wife said, nope, <laughs> you travel for work, and I'm not going to live in the middle of nowhere, alone, in charge of three small children, with no neighbors for miles around. I'll take a nice cul-de-sac community, thank you. And when you're gone for work, and I'm home alone, and it's dark outside, I will feel better having some community nearby feel safe, feel more comfort that way. Others want more than that. More neighbors, a city with museums and restaurants and teeming life, strangers all around, sidewalks full of pedestrians. They're willing to sacrifice the smell of freshly cut grass or the wide open sky, even the stars themselves, in order to be able to plug into that energy. That's Yvonne versus Nikolai in a nutshell. Nikolai dreams of the smell of cabbage soup wafting from the kitchen across the fields, his fields, the porch with the fresh air, and above all, gooseberry bushes. Gooseberries are much prized in Europe. They sound a little ridiculous to Americans, like silly goose or something. We don't have gooseberries so much here. But really, the important thing is that for Nikolai, they represent everything he wants about the country. They're always part of his imagination as he sits in his office, dreaming of his future on an estate. We get this fantastic line. He drew up plans for his estate, and every plan showed the same features. A, the main residence. B, the servant's wing. C, the kitchen garden. And D, gooseberry bushes. <laughs> How excellent is that list? How subtle and deadpan Chekhov is being here. It's like saying... He had a plan for his life all worked out. It included A, going to college, B, getting married, C, having children, and D, owning a goldfish. There's so many other things that could go in that slot, that slot D. It tells us just how important owning a goldfish is. Or, in Nikolai's case, the gooseberry bushes. They are above the duck pond and the flowers and everything else. They are part of the dream, as important as the main residence itself, as worthy of inclusion on the same list. And now we see a downside to all this, and we learn something about both Ivan and Nikolai. Nikolai becomes obsessed. Only an obsessed man would think so hard about gooseberry bushes. He saves and saves and saves, and he becomes stingy. And Ivan doesn't go there with him. He can't see it. The two grow apart. Yvonne's casting some judgment on this, not too much at first. We see more when we hear what Nikolai does to his wife. He marries an older woman, a widow who has some money, and he half-starves her. He cuts out her diet that she's used to, which is one thing, but he doesn't even give her enough money to eat black bread. She dies in three years, and he doesn't feel guilty at all. He's in the midst of an obsession now. We don't really see enough of the widow to care too much about her. She's there to help us see just how much Nikolai wants this land. He'd do anything for it. It's the primary goal of his life. Ivan swerves into a couple of anecdotes about greed. I like the one about the merchant who on his deathbed asks for a plate of honey so he can eat all of his lottery tickets and banknotes so that no one else will have them. 
can't rip them up or burn them, I guess. He has to eat them. And why not eat them with honey if you're going to eat lottery tickets and banknotes? Bring a plate of honey so I can wolf these down. What a great little story. He tells another story about greed and the man who lost his leg and worries about the 20 rubles. And suddenly Birkin is there to keep him on track. That's a horse of a different color, he says. And we're reminded what's happening here. This is a story being told. There's an audience who's listening, an audience willing to disagree with the narrator and to steer him toward what's important. An attentive, listening independent-minded audience. When Ivan Ivanich is swimming in the rain, there's Birkin to say, come on out. And here he is when Ivan Ivanich is starting to stray into anecdotes about greed. Birkin is there to say, that's a horse of a different color. Get back to your point. And we remember we're not listening to Chekhov. We're listening to Ivan. We're, listening. we're still in the house in case we've forgotten. It's all a gentle nudge, a reminder. Stick to the point, man. So, we return to Nikolai, and we see that the estate he wanted and is finally able to purchase is not perfect, but passable. There's no duck pond. The river, in fact, is as black as ink from a nearby brickworks and bone kilns. There aren't gooseberry bushes, but he has them brought in and planted. So what are we expecting at this point? Maybe that he will learn that the grass was not greener, that it's better to live a life with limits, to accept your fate, to not strive so hard for something you want. There's an element of this, but it goes deeper. There's a twist and then another and another. We'll follow them all here. Ivan goes to visit. He and his brother weep when they see each other. They're so excited, so glad, but also... So melancholy because so many years have passed and they now have gray hair and are close to the grave. Maybe that's just Ivan's mind thinking that. It's a very Ivan kind of thing to think. His brother has grown heavier. He's surrounded by large people. He's living a lush, gentlemanly life. He's become a country gentleman now, enjoying his estate. He's full of confident actions and pronouncements, which might be wrongheaded, he gives the peasants a gallon of vodka each, which they drink, and it's probably not doing them any good. But he does it because that's the conventional wisdom. That's what you're supposed to do, so he does. He's jumped right into his role. He has longed to be exactly what he is and has no regrets. And here's a big shift. Ivan says, I don't want to talk about him, but me. And we realize we're turning away from the simple story we might have expected. This isn't going to be that fable about the brother who worked so hard to get something and then realized he didn't get what he wanted after all. Maybe Nikolai has a change of heart, some regrets about everything he sacrificed. Maybe he'll think he wasted his life. But that's not the story we have here. No. The story we have is Ivan's Reaction to the place and to seeing his brother. His brother has the gooseberries brought out, the first harvest of gooseberries from those bushes he's planted. He puts them on a plate and the two brothers partake. Nikolai is in heaven. Delicious, he cries. Nivan tells us, no, they weren't delicious. They were hard and sour. His brother is a happy man, but he's completely deluded. 
that's not the whole story either. Remember, Ivan has told us that the story isn't about Nikolai anymore. It's about him. It's about his reaction. It's not a story of a man living in a happy, deluded world, or it's not just a story of such a man. Ivan says, I saw before me a really happy man, one whose dearest wish had come true, who had achieved his aim in life, got what he wanted, and was content with his lot and with himself. There had always been a tinge of melancholy in my conception of human happiness, and now, confronted by a happy man, I was overcome by a feeling of sadness bordering on desperation. End quote. What a passage. He explains further, so we understand that in Ivan's mind, we're all the brother. Happiness is ours, is available to us, only because we ignore the suffering of others. We're all deluded. Life, the world, our society, these are all like the gooseberries, hard and sour. And yet we tell ourselves that they are delicious. I've done it too, Ivan says. I've been happy, not just told myself I was happy. Note that. Doesn't say, I told myself I was happy. I fooled myself into thinking I was happy. He says, I've been happy. When I'm hunting, when I'm at the dinner table, I'm happy, and I lecture other people on things to do to be happy. The way the world should work. I'm full of these pronouncements myself, like a happy, satisfied man. But there's no such thing as happiness. It's all false. It's all a myth, a big lie, a cover-up. Behind every happy person... He says there should be a man with a hammer ready to strike the happy man, give him constant knocks to remind him that there are people suffering in silence. They will suffer in silence, and so will you, happy man, when it's your turn. Other people will be happy while you are lonely or sick or dying, and your job will be to not spoil their happiness, just as suffering people aren't spoiling your happiness now. What a vision of the world. He hates town life now. He's afraid to look in the window. What is town life but 50,000 people, most of them suffering behind closed doors? No way to be happy unless you tune out all that suffering. And when he says he's afraid to look at the window, he doesn't say he's afraid he'll see the suffering. He says he's afraid he'll see a happy family, that the sight of it is unbearable to him. And here's the next twist. It's a great epiphany, a great realization, and it doesn't help. Usually, epiphanies help. You learn something, and you can now face the world with newfound clarity. That's how stories work. That's how epiphanies and stories typically work. Not this. This only takes you into a deeper well of despair. This epiphany hurts. It causes more confusion, more doubt. It's painful. We don't know what to do. We don't know what to do. And neither does Ivan, and neither does Chekhov. There's a great story about Chekhov that he used to sit with a group of people and someone would bring up politics and everyone would have an opinion and they'd turn to Chekhov, hoping to hear some wisdom, hoping to hear him weigh in on one side or another. And he'd say, I like chocolates, don't you? We're not solving these problems. You know it, I know it. And what you've just said is fatuous, really. And what I have to say is probably fatuous, too. We sound ridiculous sitting around here talking about nonsense as if it's important. We say things that don't really matter, that aren't going to change anything. So let's get to what we know, which is that we're all at our core very simple and basic creatures. 
living our limited time here on earth. And if we can get along by agreeing on liking chocolates, if we can be the emperors of ice cream, the only emperor, as Wallace Stevens puts it, then we will be doing something more worthwhile than purporting to be experts on something we don't know enough about and couldn't change for the better even if we did. We'll say things like, let's wait. Things will, all ideas will come to fruition. He says, why wait? Why wait for that? Yvonne finishes his story. Lost, he jumps up and implores Alekin, the 40-year-old farmer, to do something with his life. Don't fall into apathy. Do something. Period. I'm old, he says. It's too late for me. Do good things. That's all you can do. Don't think. Don't reflect. Don't agonize. Don't philosophize. Don't wax eloquent. Do something. And then he says this, which absolutely slays me. He says, Alekin, start a podcast. Do the Joyce Carol Oates episode. Boy. I know it sounds crazy. When I, when I read that part, I can't help thinking. He's talking to me. Just kidding, of course. He says, do something. Good works. Good deeds. It's the only way to fill your time that won't fill you with regret later. But here's another twist. That urgent advice, the desperate advice, the pearl of wisdom. Yvonne has the point of the story. It goes nowhere in the room. Neither of the, neither person really hears it or heeds it. Alekin, we see, is too simple to really follow it. He just likes having people around who aren't just talking about hay or grain or tar. And he doesn't want to go to bed in case someone is about to say something interesting that he might miss. My God, Alekin, here I am on another continent, 122 years later. And I'm telling you, Alekin, someone just said something interesting. Someone just said something very, very profound. So yes, stay up. It's worth staying up for it. But then the conversation ends, and he's happy to go to bed because he works hard, and he's desperate for sleep. Birkin doesn't like the story either. He thinks, wow, here we are in this room with these grand paintings, these important figures looking down on us, this elegant dining room, and you're talking about gooseberries and some government clerk who became a farmer. Big deal. Let's hear about elegant people, beautiful women. That's a story. He's inspired by the drawing room and the idea that the important people in the paintings were once here. Thinking about that is better than listening to any story. So the two visitors, Ivanich and Birkin, go upstairs to their room. We have three more beats to the story. Ivan Ivanich prays for mercy. Says we're all sinners pulls the sheet over his head. Poor Ivan. We hope he has some comfort. He's like us. That's the great thing about Chekhov. I feel like I've been every character in this story. Ivan Ivanich thinking too much, Alekin simple and hardworking and not really engaged with the pretentious people around me. I've been him too. Birkin, who just wants to sweep the hard stuff away and focus on the distractions, like the elegant and beautiful people whom we might someday meet. I've been all three of these people in my life, and I've been the beautiful Pelagia as well. Not so beautiful, well, maybe when I was younger, but I mean the fly on the wall, the one bringing the drinks while the others live their lives, the important people not noticing me other than as a piece of furniture that moves. Two beats left in the story. 
How do you resolve this beautiful story? Do you fade out like a pop song? And with a cymbal crash, we hear that Ivan, begging for mercy as a sinner, falls asleep, or at least he has his sheet over his head, but his pipe is still emitting a tobacco smell, which Birkin finds stifling. Look at how subtle that is from our master, Chekhov. Birkin can't sleep. He's ignored Ivan Ivanich's cry for help, his plea to recognize the futility of human existence, the impossibility or the falseness of happiness. He's invented, he's desired a man with a hammer who will deliver constant knocks on happy people to remind them of the suffering of others. Think about that for a moment. Don't worry, be happy. Is that our goal? Is that how we get through life? No, (laughs) this is the opposite of that. This is be happy, don't worry. (laughs) And Birkin has said, nah, I like happy people, the beautiful, the elegant. Those are what I want running through my beautiful mind. So does that stop Ivan Ivanich? Does he confront Birkin again? No. What would be the point? He doesn't. But his pipe does. The wafting odor of the pipe, it's stifling, but Birkin can't figure out what it is. Something is nagging at Birkin. Chekhov could say it was his conscience, but that would be a little clumsy. Maybe it was, maybe it will be. Chekhov could say, Birkin couldn't stop thinking about that story, and all night he tossed and turned. That would get the job done, wouldn't it? But it would be a little clumsy. Chekhov is too subtle for that. For now, it's the odor of the pipe. Ivan Ivanich's pipe, which Birkin can't quite figure out. He only knows that he's troubled by something. So subtle. This is a genius at work. And then, the final beat. The rain tapped on the window panes all night. That's still for Birkin, lying there in bed. Something to listen to as he lies awake, smelling the stifling smell. But it's for all of us, too. It's the storm that was holding off, and then it came, and the rain that drenched the horses and made Ivan and Birkin, two old friends, seem vexed with one another as they went to the barn door. And the rain that splashed down on Ivan Ivanich's face as he swam, and the rain that was outside and making the inside so warm and cozy. It's the tapping of rain that shows that time and nature will continue, even when it's not our turn any longer. Those elements will endure and will be experienced by others, like life itself. (sighs) What a story. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. Happy New Year, everyone. I am in a better mood now. Chekhov, melancholy Chekhov, has cheered me up. My thanks to all of you for joining me, and thanks to our patrons, our wonderful patrons, the saints of the podcasting world. Thank you for all your support over there at patreon.com slash literature. Let's all have a great new year. Oh, I have some political commentary for you, some things I want to get off my chest. 
some important views on the world to share. Here's my opinion. Here's the expert analysis you didn't ask for, but which I shall deliver nevertheless, because I am wise and full of pronouncements. Are you ready? Here it is. I like chocolates. Don't you? I'm Jack Wilson, struggling Jack Wilson, trying to keep my head above water, and once in a while, willing to turn my face to the rain and cry out in wondrous ecstasy, like the traveler in a beautiful Japanese haiku, or the Russian traveler in a sublime story, like Chekhov's gooseberries. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.